<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 376. It's titled, What Investment Style Fits Your Personality? Right after the 9-11 terrorist bombings, a few weeks later, I was in a client meeting. Our firm had prepared some data that showed how the stock market performed after similar catastrophic events, be it wars, assassinations, bombings, other terrorist attacks? I'll share some of that data here momentarily, but after sharing that data with that client, it would have been a board member of a university endowment, he called me out on it. You don't know. There's no way you can know that. After 9-11, the first day the stock market, when it reopened, fell 7%. It was down 14% in five days, and after 10 days, it was still down around 8%. 22 days later, it was down 2.3% still. And it was around that time that I had this client meeting. 63 days later, the market was up 1.7%. And 126 market days later, the stock market, as measured by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, a measure of U.S. stocks, had gained 10%. The reality is, The stock market can sell off in the short term, but after there's some type of invasion, like we're seeing with Russia into Ukraine as we speak, other terrorist bombings, other attacks or wars, the market on average one day later, and this is going back to the early 1900s, numerous events as compiled by Ned Davis Research is down about 1% to 2%, one day, five days, 10 days later. Even after 22 days, the market is down about 1% on average. But as we go out 60 days, 126 market days, the market rebounds, and on average, it's been up 3%. Now, the takeaway from this is not that the stock market always goes up. It doesn't. It will gyrate. But we don't necessarily want to freak out whenever there's some type of invasion because it depends. And the probabilities suggest that eventually the market rebounds. Now, it doesn't always. We can look at Japan. The Nikkei 225 today is selling at the same level it was in April 1988. It's 30% below its all-time high reached in December 1989. That's the price level. With dividends, the market would have done better with those dividends being reinvested. But just the price level for the Nikkei, 30% below its all-time high. At the same level it was in 1988. That's why it's not always stocks for the long run. We have to put it into context and understand the return drivers. Now we have this invasion into Ukraine by Russia. 
I am not a geopolitical expert. I rely on institutional research to help make some decisions, and I use capital economics as my economic research firm. They say the economic and market consequences of this war will depend on the severity of the conflict and how the West responds, either with military or sanctions. The biggest impact will likely be commodity prices, with oil potentially going up to $120 to $140 per barrel, particularly if there's sanctions put on Russia. Now, if Russia is able to offload their oil to Asia, to China, that could put less pressure on global oil prices. The Russian economy will obviously be impacted if they're cut off from SWIFT, the messaging system used for international payments, if there's restrictions on their ability to convert rubles into dollars. Their Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline looks like it will be suspended. That will hurt their economy. Capital Economics estimates that the sanctions from 2014 that hit Russia after their last foray into the Ukraine, knocked off about a half a percent to a percent off their GDP. Since then, Russia has, is even less integrated into the global economy. But ultimately, the potential impact could be higher oil prices contributing to higher inflation, and that could lead to more aggressive policy response with regard to central banks raising their policy rates to combat inflation. Or if it becomes a more widespread conflict, households and businesses become cautious, then it could lead to slower increases in interest rates. We don't know. How do we process these things in trying to make investment decisions? Do we just ignore them? Do we react? Do we make adjustments? These were some of the questions that I grappled with following the Great Recession. I had been a money manager for over a decade advising portfolios, managing portfolios, steering them through the great financial crisis. At that time, I read a book titled Panarchy, Understanding Transformations in Human and Natural Systems by Lance Gunderson and C.S. Hulling. Panarchy was their theory how complex systems change, economic systems, ecological systems, social and evolutionary systems. Their view is these complex systems have different layers, different scales, and different time frames. So if we're thinking of a natural system, microbes move very, very quickly. Their life cycle is very, very quick. Whereas other plants and animals have a slower life cycle. They move at a slower scale, a larger scale. Day-to-day -day weather, lots of fluctuations, climate change, bigger scale much slower in terms of change. Now, these systems can also be impacted by contagious or non-contagious disturbances, such as a, a wildfire impacting a particular region. I took that idea of panarchy, which they named after the Greek god Pan, where they described this interplay between change and persistence, between the predictable and unpredictable, and I applied it to financial markets. I wrote in our first quarter 2010 commentary for our firm, and, and that commentary is similar to what I do in the inv monthly investment conditions report for members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Back then, I wrote that the investment landscape could be viewed as a hierarchical structure with smaller elements such as securities, stocks and bonds, combining to form larger elements such as sectors, asset classes in a nested fashion. 
There are other hierarchical structures comprised of individuals and organizations that invest in, regulate, and create both the securities and the products and businesses that raise capital from the financial markets to help grow those businesses. These structures, I pointed out, build from the bottom up, with each element getting larger and reacting and adapting more slowly the further up the chain one proceeds. There are also contagious disturbances, such as debt and asset bubbles, that disrupt and wreak havoc on the system. Most of the activity and volatility occurs at the bottom, at the base of the hierarchy, at the security level, the consumer level, the employee level. But there are changes that emerge from the bottom up and start to impact asset classes, entire economies. As an investment manager, my job was to monitor all those different layers. As investors, we don't have to monitor everything. We need to decide what scale do we want to operate on. And that depends on our personality, our temperament, our interest. We, for example, could operate on a very short time frame focused on individual securities. A day trader focusing on momentum, trend, perhaps investing in options, futures, foreign exchange, cryptocurrency. Short-term focused on individual securities, the most volatile aspects of the market. Takes a lot of time, commitment. Not everybody's suited for that. I certainly am not. Or perhaps the scale we want to operate on is a longer time frame with very few, if any, changes, focusing on asset classes. Role-based portfolios I discussed in episode 374. Permanent portfolios with an allocation to long-term bonds, gold, stocks, and cash. Another approach that I've not spent much time on, I incorporate aspects of it in how I invest, is tactical asset allocation. In this case, the time frame is usually monthly focused on asset classes. Proponents of this approach include Meb Faber, Gary Atanachi, Wouter Keller, and Jan Willem Kooning. In Plus Episode 371, I looked at a service, Allocate Smartly, that has backtest and information on numerous tactical asset allocation strategies. Allocate Smartly has 66 model portfolios. When approaching a tactical asset allocation approach, we need decision rules. We need a recipe to follow. How many asset classes will be in our tactical asset allocation model? Will we be allocating among three or four or 10 to 12 different asset classes? What are our decision rules to move from that asset class to another or from that asset class to cash? Many tactical asset allocation approaches use a dual momentum strategy. Absolute momentum would be comparing an asset to its historical price level, such as is the S&P 500 selling above its 200-day moving average or below? When it's below, the decision rule could be to move from the S&P 500 ETF into cash. We can also use relative momentum, where we have, let's say, 12 asset classes, and we will invest in the three that have had the best, most recent performance, perhaps over the past year or six months. Using momentum or trend is based on the concept of price persistence, that 
something that has a rising price will continue to have its price increase, and falling prices will continue to see prices fall even lower. Once the decision is made to move out of an asset because it's fallen below its moving average, the idea is that it will continue to fall. And then once it passes and goes back above its moving average, it will continue to rise. That is the concept behind momentum-based tactical asset allocation strategies. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. One of the models on Allocate Smartly is the Kooning and Keller's Generalized Protective Momentum model. This was a model I discussed a little bit in that Plus episode. It's a model that at least one member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus uses to invest his IRA. He has found it to be a very successful model. That model uses dual momentum, but also uses breadth of the market What is the percentage of the 12 or 14 asset classes that it follows are above its moving average? And if a a large percentage is below that average, then it moves the entire thing to cash. So it's a very aggressive model moving from cash to the top asset classes. I'll link to the research paper that describes their approach. The paper came out in 2016. I'll admit it's complicated. There's a lot of math. I went through it to try to understand it. But when you look at that, that model portfolio and their back test, it's done incredibly well. It's returned 12.3% annualized. Its maximum drawdown, a worst-case scenario, has only been around 10%. But its portfolio turnover is close to 400%. So you're making 35 trades per year. That suits some investors. That's the scale in the time frame that they want to look at. Look at it monthly. 
make a change. Right now, that model went to cash as of January 31st. Do you have the fortitude to move your portfolio or a portion of your portfolio to cash? This member compared some of these dual momentum models to what we offer at Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He pointed out that they're quantitative models. There's no judgment involved. Once you understand the model, you just implement it. I suspect a lot of people that use the models don't understand them. They just see the numbers and then they follow the recipe and you can combine different models and then then they just follow the recipe. On the other hand, my approach is to use some judgment. I look monthly at valuations, economic trends, market internals, which includes trend and momentum, but I'm looking for regime changes. I have a longer time scale, just a couple changes per year. Some years in models I run, I don't make any changes. But it's an asset garden approach. The levers that I am adjusting and monitoring are interest rate risk. How interest rate sensitive is the bond portfolio? How much credit risk am I willing to take? What about regional weights within the stock market based on valuation? What about size, big cap, small cap? What about additional income strategies, REITs, preferred stocks? Many, many different asset classes. How much liquidity do I want to have versus investing in less liquid assets, such as private equity, art, real estate? I have found from my temperament that I prefer asset class investing, numerous asset classes, making only periodic changes. I don't want to have to make a monthly change, and I certainly don't want to move my entire portfolio into cash. Others, like this member, is just using a tactical asset allocation approach for just a portion of his assets. Those that are tax-deferred because of the potential tax consequences of making 35 changes a year. Once we've determined the scale we want to operate on, how we want to approach investing, do we want to focus on, let's say, researching individual stocks? We have listeners and members that do that. They like to do that and hold a diversified portfolio of individual stocks. They like to dig into the financials, see where they believe they have some type of informational edge, where they believe a stock is mispriced, and invest that way. Now, they might have that very base level scale, but then hold on for years to the same holding. Compared to a trader that might be focused on individual securities, but making changes hourly or daily. Or again, somebody that doesn't like to make any changes at all, doesn't even want anything to do with investing and just hires an advisor to take care of that. Now, that advisor has to make those same decisions. What scale and time frame do they want to operate on? Once we understand the scale and time frame, then we need the decision criteria, the recipe that we follow, the rules of thumb. Panarchy discusses that. They give the example of animals that develop rules for actions that take advantage of the persistent in their environment while retaining enough flexibility to adjust based on unexpected events. So the rules are not rigid rules. Maybe it's recipe-like, but there's room to adjust. These rules are rules of thumb or schema. A schema is a plan, an outline, a model, a pattern that we use to analyze a complex reality, to be able to explain it. Rules of thumb are not overly detailed. They're simple. They're economical. They're good enough. 
and adaptive. An example they give in in the book is a person that learns to drive to and from work among the same route. It's it's almost automatic. Now, occasionally, there's a phenomenon they have to adapt to very quickly, but they follow that same pattern. With insects and birds, they have rules that are genetically encoded to guide and instruct them. These are schema and rules of thumb. And as investors, we can have the same thing because it helps simplify investing for us. Making a change when an asset class falls below its 200-day moving average. In my case, I am much more focused on what percent of global stock market and global stocks have fallen below their 50-day and 200-day moving averages. And so when most markets and most stocks have, I'm inclined to make changes as opposed to just one particular market. These rules of thumb also drive culture. The rules become encoded in myths, in rituals, why we do certain things. And the book gives the example of the milpa culture, cultivation of maize in Mexico and other locations in Central and South America. When I lived in Yucatan for several years, I was amazed at this milpa culture the cycle of harvesting, of planting. And it was very ritualistic, been passed on for generations and absolutely amazing. But these rules of culture get passed down. We see the same thing with investment firms. One of the attributes that I looked for in analyzing an investment manager is what is their investment culture? Do they have a schema and rules of thumb that they follow? An investing framework, how adaptable is it when markets evolve? At a larger scale, markets eventually will evolve. One of the challenges with an investment firm is how do we teach that culture? How does a country or a nation teach the culture? I'm rereading a book by Ed Slingerland called Trying Not to Try, and he it's a book about ancient Chinese philosophy, the concept of wei which literally translates into no trying or no doing. Uwe is the idea of having a dynamic, effortless, and unselfconscious state of mind where you just feel like you're in a flow. You're effective at what you do. You're able to create brilliant works of art or navigate a complex social situation. Uwe is something the ancient Chinese tried to develop. And a person that has Uwe has what is known as da, virtue, power, charismatic power. They radiate with Uwe. This book goes through different approaches by ancient Chinese schools of thought for how to approach teaching these rules of thumb, forgetting this Uwe, this Da. Confucius was very focused on specific training and rules, very rigid approach, whereas Laozi and Zhuangzi was less rigid. We have what it takes already in us to have uwe, we just need to let it evolve without being too rigid in our, our training. Trying not to try, the title of the book. So in summary then, when we think about investing, we need to think about the time scale. How often do we want to monitor our investments? How frequently do we want to make decisions? Do we want to do it daily? And it could be we use a different approach for different elements of our portfolio. Maybe you don't invest all your portfolio daily. I find monthly works well for me. That's why I look at investment conditions on a monthly basis. I'm, I'm mindful of things that are happening. 
I read the news daily, but I'm not sitting at a trading desk on a daily basis. That, that time scale just doesn't work for me. Too stressful. Monthly works well with most months not making any changes at all. Maybe you do best just a straightforward, I will rebalance my portfolio annually. Once you decide that time scale, then we want to decide how detailed do we want to get? What is the layer within the financial hierarchy that we want to focus on? Do we want to invest in individual stocks? So we're digging into income statements, balance sheets. Do we want to use derivatives? Number of listeners and plus members are fascinated by option strategies and get involved in that. Maybe we just want asset classes, a simple three-fund portfolio where we're not having to use any judgment. These are the roles, and we'll let, let it ride, maybe occasionally rebalance. So think about that. What scale and time frame works best for you? Maybe try some different strategies out. Maybe try tactical asset allocation and see if you find that a helpful scale. Maybe give money for the rest of us plus a try and see how I go about teaching investing, focused on asset classes, adjusting incrementally based on investment conditions, looking for regime changes where there's a major change in the market, focusing on those levers I discussed, interest rate risk, credit risk, regional allocations, an asset garden approach with a great variety of asset classes and learn about those asset classes what are the drivers of the returns and what is the risk in any current environment of a particular asset classes? There is no one best way to invest. We invest based on our personality, based on the amount of time that we want to put into managing our portfolio. That then is episode 376. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades. But my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners, such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com.
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.